Hey future doctors, thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. In this episode on congenital heart defects, we'll go over the major diseases, how they usually present, and how they're tested. Um, I'll also go over a few zebras for those of you who are interested in those kinds of things. Um, And then I'll also mention a lot of important risk factors and associations uh, with these diseases. Throughout this episode, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions, so I really hope that you'll interact with me, Um, whether you are shouting out loud the answers in your kitchen or thinking them quietly to yourself at the gym. I really challenge you to participate, test yourself, test your memory, test what you know. Uh, If you get a lot of answers wrong, um, please don't be disheartened. Think of this as a learning experience. It's just a review. It's all positive here. Uh, And a lot of times the answers that we get wrong are the ones that we end up remembering most for the rest of our lives. So with that, I'd like to begin. So anytime you're studying a disease or a group of diseases, you always want to ask yourself, what is most common? What is the most common disease? What's the most common presentation? So I'm going to go ahead and start by asking you, what's the most common congenital heart defect? If you're thinking VSD, ventricular septal defect, you're absolutely right. It's very common. It's more common than ASD, PDA, all of the other um, kind of defects that we study. VSD is a left to right shunt. And if you think back to how the ventricular septum is formed, uh, you might remember that there's a membranous component and a muscular component. It makes sense if you think about it. The membranous component is thinner, and so that's where the defect is most likely in that ventricular septum. The way they're going to ask you about this defect is by asking you what it sounds like on exam. So they're going to describe the murmur. And can anyone remember what that murmur sounds like? It's actually a holosystolic, harsh-sounding murmur, and it's best heard at the lower left sternal border, kind of right along the ventricular septum. So this murmur might be confused. If you think back to your APTM mnemonic for the heart sounds, the lower left sternal border corresponds to the tricuspid region, so you might confuse it for tricuspid regurge. Just remember that this murmur is more harsh sounding than that, and it also doesn't radiate to the shoulders the way tricuspid does. These murmurs aren't always audible right away when the baby is born. Sometimes it takes maybe a week into the newborn's life for there to be enough blood flow across that valve. Another thing to note is that um, the larger the defect, the softer the murmur, because it's kind of like when you whistle your lips are very close together, um, and that creates the loud sound. Same idea, the the smaller defect is going to have a louder sound, whereas the larger defect is more easy for the blood to pass through, so it has a softer murmur. You want to do an echocardiogram in these patients just to kind of assess how bad the defect is, Um, Sometimes you need to surgically intervene, but a lot of times these patients are asymptomatic and sometimes the defect will just close on its own as well. Another less common but um, equally popular amongst the board examiners kind of defect uh, is described as having a wide fixed split S2. Does that ring a bell anybody? The answer for this one is ASD, the atrial septal defect. And I don't know what you remember about how the atrial septum forms, 
but there's an ostium primum and an ostium secundum. And in this case, second time's really the charm because the ostium secundum sort of sticks around when it's not supposed to. And um, that's what ends up creating this atrial septal defect most of the time. So there's a very commonly tested complication of ASD. Uh, the story goes something like this. Um, let's say a lady in her 40s, maybe she's on a birth control pill to make it interesting. Um, she's coming back from the Bahamas or something. She's on a long flight, gets home, goes to sleep, and she wakes up with stroke-like symptoms. What happened there? Yeah, so she got a paradoxical embolus and it went and lodged in her brain. Um, normally, what you'd think, somebody who's hypercoagulable by being on birth control and having been on a long plane ride, um, they're at risk for uh, a DVT or a deep vein thrombosis. And usually what happens is that goes through the right heart and it ends up causing a pulmonary embolism. But this is weird because it went into the systemic circulation, ended up in the brain. That's what's called a paradoxical embolus, and it happens a lot with ASDs. Um, at least on the boards, it happens a lot with ASDs. Um, why doesn't it happen with VSDs, though? It's actually because the pressure gradient between the left ventricle and the right ventricle is a lot higher, and so there's very low likelihood of that right ventricle throwing a clot into the left ventricle. Um, the pressure in the atria are much more equivocal, and so it's easier for that clot to get across the atrial septal defect. What other condition can increase susceptibility for paradoxical emboli? It's not an atrial septal defect. It's similar, though. So that would be a patent foramen ovale, a PFO. Um, that one comes around a little bit differently than the ASD. This is actually when the septum primum and the septum secundum fail to fuse, um, you get a little patent foramen ovale there. Um, and so those can also kind of act as a little gateway um, for the formation of paradoxical emboli. Now this next defect is associated with a continuous machine-like murmur that's best heard over the left infraclavicular area. Any ideas what that might be? Continuous, machine-like? That's a PDA, or a patent ductus arteriosus. And the ductus arteriosus is normal in utero, in the fetus, um, because remember that the fetus's blood circulation is a little bit different, and there's a lot of shunts. Um, but normally, after the baby is born, that PDA is supposed to go ahead and close. But in this case, it doesn't. And there's a few other findings that are also associated with it. Any ideas what those are? So a lot of times these patients will have a palpable thrill at the left upper sternal border. You can kind of feel the increased blood flow through that little shunt that's not supposed to be there anymore. They'll also have bounding peripheral pulses um, because the heart is kind of trying to compensate for the less blood in the lower extremities. And so it kind of shoots out a little bit more. And then the, the PDA is actually after all the blood vessels to the head and the arms branch off. And so in the arms, you might have some bounding pulses there. Um, and then it's also associated with some lower extremity cyanosis if it's very extreme. So what's the major risk factor for PDA? This is often tested. Yeah, congenital rubella. So um, 
Congenital rubella infection is associated with cataracts, deafness, and PDA oftentimes. Um, it's important to know the drugs uh, that are used to manage PDAs. Most of the time, if PDA is the only defect, you're going to want to close it. So how would you achieve that? Yeah, indomethacin and NSAID, that's a great way to close the PDA. I like to think of it as indomethacin induces closure of the PDA, if that helps. Um, and then if you want to keep it open, you might be thinking, why would you want to keep it open? Um, we'll get there, but there's a few cyanotic heart conditions um, that involve right to left shunts. And with a lot of major defects in the heart, they often don't work unless there is a different shunt as well. And so sometimes you want to keep the PDA open um, so that the baby can survive until they can get into surgery. So in those cases, you would use a, you would use prostaglandins. PGE2 is a great one um, to keep the PDA open. And so think of it as the prostaglandins with the P, keep the PDA patent. So you want prostaglandins for patency, and you want the indomethacins to induce closure um, of these pesky PDAs. Okay, so now we've gone over VSD, ASD, PDA. All of these are considered what? Acyanotic, right? They're considered acyanotic because they don't cause cyanosis early on in the baby's life. But does that mean they're benign? Not really. There's a big complication of these, um, and it has kind of a fun name. What's that? Eisenmenger syndrome. So VSD, ASD, PDA, all these acyanotic lesions um, can develop later cyanosis in what's called Eisenmenger syndrome. And the way that works is really interesting. So what happens when you have these left-to-right shunts? Where's all that blood going? It's going right into the pulmonary arteries. And so all that increased pulmonary blood flow causes remodeling of the pulmonary arteries and it creates pulmonary artery hypertension. When you have that much hypertension in the pulmonary arteries, the right ventricle has to pump harder, right? Um, and it hypertrophies. Well, eventually the right ventricle can hypertrophy so much that it actually reverses the shunt. And so blood that was going from the left to the right now goes from the right to the left. So what's happening? Deoxygenated blood is getting into the systemic circulation. And that's a recipe for cyanosis. So all this decreased oxygen in the systemic circulation actually induces release of... Um, the renal cells release this factor. It's called hypoxia-inducible factor. And um, it releases PDGF, which activates fibroblasts. It releases erythropoietin. And what does that lead to? What, what am, why am I going in this direction? It leads to the major physical findings in Eisenmenger syndrome. So clubbing is a commonly tested one where the fingernails kind of boss over and they're more rounded. Um, you might ask a patient to put their thumbs together and instead of seeing a pretty little diamond there, you'll see the nails are touching. That's called clubbing and it's because of fibroblasts. Um, and they'll also have polycythemia from the erythropoietin. This kind of happens in any situation where you have hypoxia, not just Eisenmenger syndrome. Also, if you're hypoxemic at high altitudes, um, if you're hypoxemic from a lung disease like COPD. Um, but Eisenmenger syndrome is really essentially from pulmonary artery hypertension, right ventricular hypertrophy, and reversal of the shunt. 
Um, that's a big complication of these acyanotic heart diseases. And remember, they're only called acyanotic because they're acyanotic when the baby is born. Now, what are their counterparts? The cyanotic conditions? These are a little more serious, I guess, because they are right-to-left shunts, and they happen, and they cause cyanosis right when the baby is born. Um, and so they're pretty awful. There's five of them, um, and they all start with T's, which makes it a little easy for us. So you can think about what they are, pause if you need to, but uh, there's a great way to remember all five of them. First of all, they all start with T's, and we're just going to remember them by going one, two, three, four, five. So one is truncus arteriosus. Think of one trunk, um, and you'll remember truncus arteriosus. Two is transposition of the great vessels. So think of transposing the two great vessels, and that's how you'll remember two. Three is tricuspid atresia. So think of the tri as three. That's pretty easy. And then four, of course, is tetralogy of Fallot, the most infamous one. And finally, five is TAPVR. It has five letters. Um, I know it's a bit of a stretch, but total anomalous pulmonary venous return. Five letters, that's the fifth one. Okay, so that's a great mnemonic to remember all of the cyanotic heart diseases. Um, and a lot of these are going to result from conotruncal abnormalities. Um, co the conotruncal region is what forms the base of the aorta and the pulmonary artery. Do you remember from embryology what cells are responsible for that particular region? So it's actually the neural crest cells. So failure of neural crest cells to migrate can often lead to conotruncal abnormalities. So that can contribute to things like truncus, transposition of the great vessels, and tetralogy of Fallot for sure. Okay. Now, remember, many of these are going to require um, concurrent ASDs, VSDs, PDAs, um, for example, tricuspid atresia, there's no connection between the right atrium and the right ventricle. So the blood has to go all the way around. So it needs a concurrent ASD and VSD as well. A lot of these other diseases, you might want to have a PDA open just so that you can keep this baby alive long enough um, to take them into the OR. And so what drug do we use for that again? That's right, prostaglandin E2. Now I'm just going to go one through five and kind of ask you guys um, important questions about each of these. Not all of them are very commonly tested, so we won't even touch upon a lot of them. Um, truncus arteriosus, I guess, um, has one association which I'd like to test you guys on. Does anyone know what it's associated with? That would be DeGeorge syndrome. Um, the mnemonic for DeGeorge syndrome and everything it comes with is the catch-22. It's called catch-22 because the abnormality is on the 22Q11 region of that chromosome. Um, and so the way you can remember this, think of an elephant named George. And all Georges have trunks. I mean, all elephants have trunks. And so you'll remember that um, truncus arteriosus is associated with DeGeorge. The next one is a pretty great one. It's called transposition of the great vessels. And does anyone remember what great risk factor it's associated with? That would be maternal diabetes. So I think of diabetes as a pretty great disease. Um, it's great in terms of the number of people that it affects. It's great in terms of 
I guess, how lucrative it is for endocrinologists. Um, and it's great in terms of the fact that with proper medication and lifestyle changes, it can be managed well. So think of maternal diabetes as a great disease, and you'll remember that it's associated with transposition of the great vessels. Uh, the reason that this um, disease comes about is because there's failure of the aortical pulmonary septum to spiral. So think about the anatomy of the heart from your anatomy lab and think about how weird the way that the aorta and the pulmonary artery twisted and all of that was. And um, you'll remember that they need a spiral. So if they don't spiral, then you have transposition of the great vessels and the aorta is coming out of the right heart and the pulmonary artery is coming out of the left heart. And this is associated with diabetes. And then the last acyanotic heart disease that I'm going to go over is actually a very common test question, so you should be familiar with this. Let's say a three to four-year-old child is playing around in a playground and all of a sudden they become blue and then they just squat and then they feel better. What's that classically associated with? That would be Tetralogy of Fallot. So Tetralogy of Fallot, does anybody know what the defect is? I'd be impressed. I guess I can't really hear you, so um, I guess I'm not going to be impressed. But if you know this, pat on the back. The answer is displacement of the infundibular septum. The infundibular septum is kind of right in the middle of the heart, and that gets screwed up, and then tetralogy of Fallot happens. So it's kind of hard to remember all of the defects associated with this condition unless you kind of understand what's going on. So I'm going to try to make it into a story and try and help you understand what exactly is happening in tetralogy of Fallot. So the first thing you have to understand is that there's an overriding aorta, okay? The aorta is cool. I love my aorta, but in this case, um, it gets a little out of hand and it has it wants too much control. So it's trying to be on top of the left ventricle, but it's also trying to be on top of the right ventricle at the same time. It's overriding. It's overkilling, okay? So you have an overriding aorta, and it's overriding so much that part of the ventricular septum disappears too. So you have a ventricular septal defect. Overriding aorta, and now you've crushed the ventricular septum. Well, the overriding aorta not only pushes the septum, it also pushes on the pulmonary artery. And so it causes pulmonary stenosis because it's kind of narrowing the opening of the pulmonary artery because it's trying to get blood out of the right ventricle. So the right ventricle, what's it going to do? It's going to hypertrophy because it's trying to get blood into the pulmonary artery. Um, and so now you have these four things. You have this nasty overriding aorta. You have a ventricular septal defect. The pulmonary artery is stenosed, and now, as a consequence, the right ventricular is hypertrophied. So if you understand why these four elements are in place, you'll kind of understand um, other things as well. So one of those is the chest x-ray finding. What's the CXR finding for Tetralogy of Fallot? It's a boot-shaped heart. Why is it boot-shaped? Because the right ventricular is really huge, and that's what kind of lies right on the bottom, kind of um, right on top of the diaphragm there, at the bottom of the, the very bottom of the heart. And so when that gets big, it starts making the heart look like a boot. Now you have a boot-shaped heart. And then another thing that's good to know is the most important determinant of prognosis. What's going to determine how the patient is going to do? How good or bad? 
that would be the degree of the infundibular stenosis, how much the pulmonary artery is stenosed. Um, if it's if it's worse, the narrowing is worse, then that's going to be a worse prognosis. And then the question stem that I had described for tetralogy of Fallot, um, that's really that's what's called a tet spell. Anytime the child is doing more activity, they're crying, they're feeding, or they're playing. Um, they become hypoxic, worsens the pulmonary stenosis, and they get a tet spell and become blue. So what do they do to help with that tet spell? They squat, right? And it's kind of sad, and I feel bad for these kids because this is something that they just figure out on their own. But it's kind of cool to think about from a medical perspective because we can understand why squatting helps. Why does it help? So squatting increases the systemic vascular resistance. So it kind of causes all the arterioles to constrict. That increases the afterload and it actually decreases the right to left shunt. So more blood is going into the pulmonary circulation and the oxygenation in these kids is getting better. And so that's why squatting really helps. So tetralogy of Fallot is a little scary, but it's actually really cool once you understand it. And always remember, boot-shaped heart. That's going to be on the exam, guys. Just a few more diseases that I'd like to go over with you guys. These don't fit quite as nicely into the categories of cyanotic and acyanotic, um, but they're not any less important to know. So the first vignette I'll sort of describe is a girl in her teens. Um, let's say that she has a shield chest and widely spaced nipples, a webbed neck, short stature, uh, and let's say she has amenorrhea. What cardiac anomaly might you expect to see in her? That would be coarctation of the aorta. Um, the case I described is classic for Turner syndrome, uh, the 45XO karyotype. And um, these patients often have coarctation of the aorta. Um, and what are some physical exam findings that are associated with coarctation? So to kind of answer that question, you need to know where exactly the um, coarctation happens. Um, intuitively, you'd think it happens kind of right after the aorta buds off of the heart, um, but that's not the case. It happens right just distal to the, um, the ligamentum arteriosum. So usually the coarctation happens more distally after the aorta has already given off branches to supply the head and the arms. And so because of that, these patients often present with what's called a brachiofemoral delay. Um, you can actually feel a delay in the pulse between their brachial artery and their femoral artery. They're often sometimes hypertensive in their upper extremities as well, um, and their lower extremities might appear cyanotic. Um, a common chest x-ray finding with this, it's actually really interesting. If you know what it is, um, I guess go ahead and think about that. Um, the common chest x-ray finding in Turner syndrome is actually notched ribs. What happens is a lot of collaterals form um, since the aorta, the abdominal aorta isn't able to supply as well. A lot of collaterals form, for example, between the subclavian artery and the thoracic arteries. And so those um, arteries become quite engorged and they can actually start um, eroding part of the ribs. And so you can see a little notched rib on chest x-ray. It almost looks like someone drew a little three into the side of the rib. Um, that's commonly seen in Turner syndrome. Now, moving on, what if I described a heart 
that has an atrialized right ventricle, meaning that the tricuspid valve is kind of displaced further down into the right ventricle, lower than it should be. What's that called? Good, that's called Epstein anomaly. So does anyone know what the major risk factor is for developing Epstein anomaly? It's actually maternal use of lithium. So if a mom is being treated for bipolar disorder and the baby has some kind of cardiac anomaly, this is definitely what you want to think of. Now, um, there are some important heart defects in Down syndrome. It's good to know what happens in Down syndrome. Um, there's a lot of different associations with that disease, but in terms of the heart, um, these patients have what are called atrioventricular septal defects. So their endocardial cushions do not form properly. Um, and so the septa between the atria and the ventricles don't always form correctly. These patients can also get a lot of ASD and VST. Now, there's one important murmur uh, that's often congenital that we didn't really talk about. I'll describe it for you guys now, and let's see if you know what it is. Um, this is described as a late systolic crescendo murmur with a mid-systolic click, and it's usually best heard over the apex. This is also the most common valvular lesion. It's mitral valve prolapse. It's quite common. Um, the mid-systolic click that's described, try and remember that it's due to sudden tensing of the chordae tendineae. And if you kind of understand that mitral valve prolapse is associated with a few conditions, um, these conditions are Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos. Um, these are both connective tissue diseases. So the connective tissue isn't formed properly, and that's what leads to um, kind of this laxity in the valve. And so when those chordae tendineae suddenly tense, it creates a mid-systolic click associated with mitral valve prolapse. And now these last two diseases are a little bit, um, little bit of wild cards, but if you guys know these, that, that'll be really good for you. So this first disease is described as having, patients have dextrocardia, um, a lot of times they have infertility due to immodal sperm, and these patients also get um, recurrent respiratory tract infections. They can be, they can have chronic sinusitis. They can have chronic bronchiectasis. What am I thinking of? It's Cartagener syndrome, uh, also known as primary ciliary dyskinesia. This is a rare autosomal recessive disorder, uh, but it results in a defective dynean protein, which is an axonemal protein. Um, involved in movement of cilia. So when the cilia don't work, um, first of all, the heart doesn't necessarily rotate properly. Sometimes all the organs can be kind of inverted. It's called situs invergis. Um, the sperm are immodal because cilia are not working, so that can cause infertility. And the cilia in the airway aren't working either, um, and so they're not as good at evacuating the bacteria um, from the lungs and the sinuses and so on. And so these patients can get chronic respiratory tract infections as well. And finally, um, this one is really hard, I think. Um, but if you guys know this, I'll be impressed. What disease is associated with supravalvular aortic stenosis? So the disease I'm thinking of is called Williams syndrome. Uh, it's associated with a deletion on chromosome 7. It's quite rare. Um, but these patients, uh, when I was taught, I was kind of taught that these patients are the opposite of autistic patients and that they're very verbal, they're very friendly with strangers, 
Um, they have kind of classically elfin facies, and they also have hypercalcemia due to increased sensitivity to vitamin D. Um, and so the heart lesion that's associated with Williams syndrome is the supravalvular aortic stenosis. And this kind of goes along with that, but these patients can also often have renal artery stenosis. So that's really all I have for you guys in terms of congenital heart diseases. If you're still listening, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope this was a helpful review. I hope you learned something. Um, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, as always, feel free to visit our website. There will be a page with this podcast, um, and underneath there will be some room for comments. So any questions that you have, um, any suggestions for further improvements would also be appreciated. Uh, really, anything you guys want to share with us, um, please feel free to. So I think I'll stop blabbing now, and I'll leave you to it. But just remember, if you're ever feeling down while studying, SOS is not just a cry for help. It can also stand for a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. <laughs>